guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview. And this time we go on the podium. We have got a guest from the UK. Because guess what? Trauma and funny things happen around the world. It doesn't matter in which country you live. It doesn't matter if you have got two X or an X or a Y chromosome. It doesn't matter which color your skin is. Guess what? Shit happens. And sometimes shit happens so bad that we are all suddenly are forced to stop and think, oh my God, what now? And that can be the moment that either breaks you or it can make you. And often enough, it breaks you first and then makes you. So there we are going from victim to survivor to thriver. And my guest tonight is no different. Louise McMillan um, has had her fair share of, of challenges. And I'm so pleased that you're on my show. Thank you very much, Louise. Let's explore the messages that you have learned the hard way. Thank you so much for inviting me along. I look forward to talking to you. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Um, where to start with you? Because you have been... <laughs> no, exactly. You have been... That's what everybody been... says. <laughs> <laughs> where do we start with Louise? Well, that's, really? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but you're right. No, no. The, the, the reason is that a number of things uh, have happened in your life. Maybe let's start with you as a teenager. I mean, it is. who did you want to be? Uh, what did you want to be when you grow up? What was your well, dream? As a as a teenager, I wanted to be a policewoman. Um, oh, excellent. But I had, but I had this idealistic um, thing of being out in the countryside. You know, you know, going around on my bike, knowing all the people that lived there. It was a real. Um, we had a program years ago called I think it was Juliet Bravo, and it was kind of really nice police, kind of you know, nineteen seventies, eighties kind of police show. Um, and I think that was what sort of um, kind of inspired me, really. But it, but I think that was all about people. Um, you know, and I was a girl guide, so I loved wearing my girl guide uniform, even though as a teenager, I used to hide it, you know, hottest weather, you'd always put a coat on <laughs> because you just wanted to hide it, you know, at that age, you do, don't you? Um, but yeah, it was just that thing about helping people, but, um, and I did end up going around to help people, but not in the police. That's right. You, you ended up being HR and going That's out right. that into corporate world. Um, yes. how was that life? It was challenging at times. There was some things that um, in the HR world which are, are fun and easy to do and really rewarding. Um, but there's other times when it was really, really hard, you know, when you're having to do a disciplinary or a grievance or there's somebody that's really off, off poorly from work um, and you're therefore having to look about how, whether, how they can stay in the organisation or not. And then you've got people that are not performing for whatever reason and that's quite challenging because you've got to try and get it over in the mm. in the right way that encourages them to start thinking about it. But at the same time, you've got a manager that's going, this is not acceptable. And it's it's quite balancing between the manager and the employee and the law, um, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, that that kind of did impact my mental health, I would say, doing the sort of employee relations side of, of HR and the positive side, which is all the learning and development, the recruitment, that kind of thing. Which is cool, but I mean, of course, not just do you have to work with sometimes uh, difficult people. I mean, you work with so many people. Was was that a large company that you were working in? Um, it varied, but quite often they were quite quite large organisations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, it's remembering that everybody's different. And yeah. you know, that's the challenge sometimes when you're 
trying to support a manager, what you've done with one manager, one person, um, you know, it, it doesn't always mean you'll do exactly the same again mm. because the circumstances are different um, and therefore you always have to seek to understand and that's mm. quite challenging. Um, and also managers hide behind HR. Um, so therefore it's quite challenging the fact that you're blamed for everything and you know you never, you've never got a name you're just known as HR you know well HR's in the room it's like you know Louise is in the room and you know we, we're not here we don't I mean I've never hired anybody and I've never sacked anybody but I've supported managers who have and when you put it that way they get to you know get to understand it but that's what you're doing you're just supporting the manager yeah. and supporting the employee oh. to get the best for the company. And of course, that's a hard job, because if you think guys out there, I mean, one in 10 percent, uh, one in 10. So 10 percent of people have a personality disorder, which are not often so, such nice people. One in 100 is a psychopath, a sociopath. Guess what? You're meeting all of them. And often enough, it's the 10 percent of people who make 90 percent of the work. Um, so it is uh, I can imagine that just dealing with people can be such a challenge, um, especially when you're not when there's not an immediate benefit for people as when they're interacting with you. You're sort of like you know, like the IRD or IRS, however yeah. it's called it there. You know, no one ever says, oh, brilliant. I'm going now to do have a mental rectoscopy of my finances <laughs> yeah right no one likes yeah. that so there was the stress there for you how did you deal with stress um well i would probably say i used to deal with stress quite badly so um i would used to come the teat um i never used to sleep very well i always used to sleep with a post-it note and a pen by the side of the bed so i was up and i was writing down in the middle of the night um yeah withdraw i would withdraw from so for social activities, just because I was so drained sometimes. And when you have got friends that aren't in that world, and a lot of my friends happen to be accountants, you know, and they are great fun, you know, it's not a stereotypical out, um, that they have, they're boring, they're not, but quite a few things are black and white. And that's how they would see it. And when you're trying to go, no, it's a very grey world that HR professionals live in. Um, yeah, it was quite challenging at times to sort of mm. deal with that stress. So, yeah, but exactly. comfort eating was my worst thing, yeah, I would say. <laughs> so it was the sugar, sugar that was your escape. Yes, basically, what, yes. What about alcohol? Um, no, I've never really been one for um, drinking, oh, when, I say when I was younger, but I can leave alcohol, really can just, just leave it, yeah. Yeah, and I've never is... been anybody that's hooked on it, yeah. At the same token, the overeating uh, can give you just as much this kind of release of pressure, this kind of of uh, the tension building, building, building. Then there is this cheesecake, or was it ice cream? <laughs> what was it for uh, yeah, you? I, ice cream is good one, but chocolate, just basically chocolate. And I'm, obviously, <laughs> I know the chocolate in the UK is just like, oh my god! Everybody I know from abroad who comes to the UK is like, send me chocolate back. Um, That's true. Yeah, it's surprising how many um, bars of chocolate and Twixes and, you know, <laughs> Kit Kats you can get through during a day. It's oh, funny. hell yes. Hell yes. <laughs> because what does it give you? Immediate energy, immediate power. There you are. You're this artificial but, high and you're you're chasing that high just as much as another drug can give you. It is sugar is one of the biggest addictive substances. I'm not surprised. So yeah. and I'm I'm as guilty as charged. Okay, from now and then there is this kind of low, and I I need that kick up the ass um, because maybe my circumstances don't allow me to to just give in and 
you know, take it easy. Now I need to be on, yeah, chocolate, go to definitely, 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, but also it's a comfort, isn't it? You know, when you think when you're little, you know, there was something um, wrong. Sorry, I got you. Oh, trouble. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, if you have, um, you know, when you're younger and you have a, you know, you fall over or something, your, your mum or even your nan would give you a biscuit. Um, and very from an early age, um, when um, I used to go to play school, so my nan would pick me up from play school and I would have a cake as a treat. And then we'd go and pick my older sister up from school and she would buy us a cake. And my mum had to say to her, no, Louise only has one cake during the day, not two. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, so, dear. So, yeah, so it was that thing of, I think that was the whole thing. Well, it's that treat, isn't it? So, therefore, when you come out of a disciplinary and it's been really hard going, mm. your, your mindset always goes, oh, I need a treat, I need some chocolate. And in some respects, I'm glad it was, I went for the chocolate, not for the smoking oh, or for the alcohol, which, you know, some other people people did. You know, I, I, I went oh. with HRP, so I've got to go and have a cigarette. And you go, wow, you know, but your thing was, I'm going to go and have a bar of chocolate. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's all, it all has, you pay a price for everything you're doing. Okay, that's just a fact. You, um, the, the, the sugar in its own right, Oh, let, let me restart it. We all, many of us have got addictions and it is a bit of a whack-a-mole game. So when you're coming off your alcohol and if you're not dealing with the underlying problem, guess what? The next best thing will just come. Let that be cigarettes, let that be sugar. And often enough, it's sugar. So guilty as charged. When I, when I stopped drinking, there were uh, gummy wine snakes I I ate them. I mean, the whole day there were gummy snakes for Africa everywhere, and it was accepted in that model of 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 recovery where I was. Nowadays, we find out I realized that I just exchanged one uh, addiction for the other. In all fairness, mm -hmm. and um, it's still I'm I'm still working. I still have this addictive personality. So a cake looks rather tempting to me, and as if there ever was one slice of cake. That's rookie numbers. One slice. Yes. Yeah, a quarter of a cake. That's a slice. <laughs> and then maybe two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so now Abs we're talking. Absolutely. And it's okay. that thing when you go shopping, isn't it? And you kind of go in, I need a treat. So you kind of get that cake and then you kind of go around, oh, you could do some chocolate. And then when you come home, you finally got half the half the store of all the naughty things. And then it's like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and again, again, that is something that was there for you. And it it served a purpose. It served a purpose at that time because it gave you that release. It gave you that yeah. that that uh, moment that you otherwise yeah. couldn't get. So it it was what it was then. So there you were. I get already the picture of a woman living all out, um, working, 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 having loads of pressure. Um, maybe not necessarily ever been taught how to deal with pressure and with negative emotions deep mm. down inside you probably had all kind of hr courses on dealing with different people etc but often enough that is more dealing with others not dealing mm. with your own introspection with your own actually own emotions i mean i was crap in that i was yeah. yet i did so i read so many self-improvement books Oh, oh my God, there was not one that I probably didn't read, but typically with a glass of wine in the hand, then I never did anything about it. <laughs> so, sounds about right. Okay. 
So how long did that lifestyle of boom and bust last with you? Oh, I would probably say 20 years. Mm, yeah, exactly. 20 years, 20 years. I always say I lost 20 years of my life, if not more. Um, <laughs> but yes, 20 years. And I wouldn't say that was just because of the, the HR work, but yes, the, yeah. the whole thing of, yeah, the impact. Um, and it wasn't obviously just the impact of the work you're doing as well. It's the impact of everything else that's going wrong around you as well. And, mm. you know, those beliefs you get from your from your childhood from those um formative years as well and the impact that has on you as well because that's what you're replaying in mm. your head at the same time yeah. were you were you brought up in an in a working attitude in a in a how shall i say that in an um lazy lazy hands is the uh, gives gives way to the devil's work that kind of i i don't know the exact saying but ultimately yeah. so, this yeah always so have my, to my be parents, busy my parents were workaholics basically mm-hmm. so yeah, um, yeah. um you know my mum would go in to work at six o'clock in the morning and because she worked not far from where my dad worked so he would go in at the same time and uh-huh. she would work they would work until six o'clock at night so as teenagers we would be coming home and putting the tea on ready of course they'd work Saturday mornings um and sometimes my mum would work Sunday mornings as well sometimes she'd work until nine o'clock at night dad would be home in between um which gave us that really good work ethic um stance you know um, um you know my parents very much say that about my sisters and I that we have very good work ethic um but what we didn't know and what we could only see was how they dealt with pressure and everything else and it was just a constant and you don't know how they did it I mean I still don't know how they did it with three girls as well you know I don't have children so I don't see how they they do it. I know from my sister's point of view, you know, she has both my sisters, they've had help. You know, my mum and dad have helped them, you know, with the children as they've growing up. Um, but we didn't always have that for my grandparents because they, they were older, they didn't drive, um, and there wasn't just mm. us, if that made sense, you know, with cousins and everything. Mm. Um, and of course, my parents didn't always like to ask for help. Um, they wanted to sort of <laughs> do everything themselves. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it, was, it was good. And, and you know, my parents are very proud of what we've all done. So, you know, it, it's um, it's nice in that way. But yes, just to, I think that whole work work thing was embedded in us, that you work hard. And, and I did work very, mm. very hard because I didn't, it wasn't just the work, you, you worked late as well. Um, mm. Even, you know, sometimes going in at weekends if we needed to. Very true. Very, very true. And guilty as judged. I mean, I defined myself by with my work to a point where I only could define myself as my working role rather than me being a man and having interests outside of work or any hobbies or any anything else. I could only tell about my glorious young life and about the hard work I'm doing now. And that's about it. So I was a workaholic and an alcoholic because I used the alcohol to decompress. Right. You used the sugar. So, but yeah. the, ultimately, the same boom and bust cycle, the same, the same complete unawareness of my mm. own shortcomings as far as work-life balance is concerned, as far as um, dealing with my emotions uh, was concerned. Yeah. So. Uh, and that was me, and it took me then quite a bit of, bit of mm, so, uh, spiraling down and crashing and burning. Um, but with you, it came a bit different, didn't it? It was no slow, slow slide. You were boom, bust, boom, bust, work, 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 and then suddenly happened. Tell us. So yeah, as well I, as you say, is that boom busting, and I spiral into depression, and that was quite mm. hard, hard going at times. Um, 
and it's interesting just before I tell you what happened it was just um a few months beforehand I was diagnosed with depression again and I was really really in a bad place um so when I had you know I'd keep going at work but I would come home and go straight to bed and I get up but I go to work and I come home and I'm straight to bed and I would live like that for a good few weeks before I realized really realized what was happening and at the end of 2016 when this happened um the only person I could tell was my mum um and a very very numb Christmas and I remember saying to her um during that Christmas um I've got to change things because otherwise what's the point of me being here um I had it so low but I've also got just such a state where I just didn't want to keep going in and out of this spiraling into depression every couple of years um so 2017 was all about building myself up and then I was given my as I call my biggest curveball ever I was diagnosed with breast cancer um totally out of the out of the blue um I had a concern with one breast and they did test to be on the safe side um so I'm always thankful for the NHS in the UK they did test me on the safe side and they found cancer in my right breast um mm. and we weren't even expecting that even when we we're going for the test we just we just didn't even think that cancer would come up it wasn't even something that, that kind of came to the forefront of our minds so mm. absolutely shocked when, uh, you were 37 then, weren't you? No, I was older than no. I was 44. <laughs> 44, okay. Now that's fine, because ultimately uh, breast cancer is a, is a very strange beast. And we, as certainly as doctors, we have seen it occurring younger and younger mm. um, in, in, in women due to a number of reasons. But uh, here you were 44 still, still, you're, you're in the middle of working, you're in the middle of, of trying to make sense of life. And then suddenly, the C word is there. Um, did you have an inkling? You say it came yeah. out of the blue? No. Did, did you do a manual, manual examination and found uh, something? Or I, was it a mammogram? Or? No, what I noticed was a discharge from my left breasts. Ah. Left breasts, I've only got one left breast. <laughs> my left breast um and it was on my um pajama tops so it was like a, a uh, dry a dry wet mark and I thought yeah. this was strange and it happened a few times so yeah. I went to see my GP she examined me said I don't think there's anything untoward however I refer you to be on the safe side uh-huh. uh, I saw a consultant um and he examined me said I don't think there's anything untoward um mm. it could be a blocked milk duct um and um, he said, so let me get a mammogram and we might have to do an ultrasound. Mm. Um, we'll do that and see what happens. So mm-hmm. I had the mammogram um, and that was fine. I did find that it hurt. Um, then they did the ultrasound. Um, and when they did the ultrasound, they said there was something on my right breast that looked a bit strange, mm-hmm. which I queried because I said it was my left I had a concern with. So bless them, <laughs> they did the ultrasound all over again. <laughs> you know, they said, oh, no, there's something here on the right. And I can't see anything on their screen. <laughs> Um, so they did a little biopsy and, and literally we did still didn't think anything of it. My mum had had a cyst years ago. Um, I can't remember what they call it, but I know they abbreviate the long word to a mouse. So you might might know in your mm. medical knowledge. Um, and so we just thought, oh, perhaps it was that. Didn't really oh. didn't think anything of it. I was called in a week later. They said they'd had a cancellation. So could I could I come on in? Um, and so we came in and um, obviously we saw a different consultant and explained everything what happened. She examined me and obviously my breast was obviously tender where they did the, the little biopsy with this little gadget. And then she said that they detected breast cancer um, in my breast and they thought it was 25 millimetres and stage two. Um, obviously I was with my mum at the time, as you can imagine, we were just, yeah, 
total shock. It, it, it hadn't even hadn't even come and thought best. There's no breast cancer in my family whatsoever. Um, my dad had had bladder cancer, mm. and his parents had had um, kidney and stomach cancer. So different cancers. Mm. Um, so yeah, so there was no history of, of, of breast cancer in in the family. So yeah, we were just absolutely stunned. To be honest with you, absolutely stunned. Um, but the bizarre thing, um, and this is for me something that I now hold on precious to, is the fact that on my way back to the car, all I could think about was what I was going to call it, and I called it Stan. And it was a really bizarre thing. That's all I kept thinking of, <laughs> is what am I going to call it? Um, Stan, you know, and we got okay. it. Stan. And my mum says, all I could see was you were wittering, she said. <laughs> On the way back, we walked back to the car, and I said, "Well, I just kept thinking about what I could call it." Um, and and then when we got back into the car, she said, "You know, my mum doesn't drive, so I had to drive home." And she said, "Are you all right? Do you want to grab, you know, get a few breaths in? Do you want to before you start driving?" And I went, "No, I just want to go home and see Dad." And that's what we that's what we did. And you know, walking back into the house, um, we always go, um, you know, we walk through the back of the house and we go where the lounge is, so Dad could see us walking down the down the hallway both of us in like floods of tears by this point and I think his immediate thought was that I banged the car <laughs> you know or something you know what happened next to the car but we managed to get back so you know he was absolutely yeah dumbfounded when we finally said what we've been told and as was the family for the rest of the next few hours when we finally you know got around to telling all of them wow and that's hard. I mean, you were just saying you had your mood was already not the best. And on top of that, you get that. But it's it's the Stan I makes me love because that immediately makes me think that you're a survivor. You are a, a woman, a fighter there, because otherwise you wouldn't have labeled it uh, a name. You wanted yeah, probably, to get yeah. to know that bastard and that bastard <laughs> somehow was called Stan. OK, you bastard. OK, I'll get you. <laughs> OK, my, I see already. Lovely... Hey. I was say, my lovely friend, Emma, when I said to her that I called it Stan and she went, that is so she's, she's one of these friends who I'd only known a little while, but I could be absolutely 100 percent myself. And she's like, that is totally you, girly. She said that you would name it. And, she said, and they are going to give some, he's going to give some scientists a lot of pleasure as they flick it around a Petri dish, finding out what kind of cancer it was. She said, so, you know, you're going to give somebody a lot of satisfaction with Stan. And I was like, that was just so brilliant. <laughs> it was just absolutely so brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Okay. So there's already, that was already the inkling rather than the usual journey of denial. No, can't be. I will never have that. Did did those faces come? Come? Did they come later, or were you from the word go accepting that this is a new challenge in your life and you took it took the bull by its horns? Yeah, I was very much of this is not happening, and I need to live. It was that kind of moment when this is not going to kill me. I'm going to live. I need to live. I want to live. Whereas six months, and literally, we are talking. It was the twelfth of June. Yeah. This was told, and literally between Christmas and New Year, so you know, um, six months beforehand, I was saying, What's the point of me being here? <sighs> you know, because I was that low, and now this was like my biggest wake up call to say, Life's too short, you're only here once. Excellent, excellent. Did 
I don't know how the NHS placed it and, and uh, how your work played it, but where did the money come from? I mean, suddenly you had to undergo treatments and, and uh, deal with it. Uh, did you have a, a private insurance that covered you or was it no. all part? Yeah, so thankfully we have a fantastic NHS service where our taxes pay for the NHS. Yeah. So we don't get, we don't have to be charged every time we go and ask for medical support. Nice. Nice. Um, when you work, when you're working, you are taxed and you've got national insurance, yeah. and that pays for. I think in fact, some of national insurance yeah. pays for the for the NHS, um, yeah. and so therefore you, you don't have to worry about that. Mm. Um, obviously, my mum and dad did go into solution mode of you know don't worry about bills, household bills, whatever I'm having because I literally had just started a new job, and it was a fixed term contract. Oh, shit. So I literally had been there. Uh, three weeks maximum ah, um, okay. um and the next day i was due to go up north up um about a four or five hour journey away with a colleague um to see a different part of the organization so i had phoned my manager and told her what happened and she just said oh i'll tell sophie won't go tomorrow and i'm like i'm going she went, are you sure i said yeah i've just got to carry on as normal i just couldn't the whole thought about just sitting around this dwelling on me yeah. Um, I just couldn't do. So the next day I went to work. I went up to Bolton, which is near Birmingham, um, up that way for a couple of meetings on that Tuesday. And again, on the Wednesday, we stayed over. And Sophie, I went up with, um, was absolutely brilliant. She listened to me. We talked about Stan. We criticised Stan. and But we talked about other things. Um, we did do a, a Marks and Spencer stop on the on the services on the way up to go and get the chocolate, you know, because we've got to have Marks and Spencers. If we're now <laughs> going to do anything, it's different. And we, we even chat now, I saw a couple of weeks ago, and we still laugh about that we had to go and get a Marks and Spencer stop. Um, because, yeah, and she's become a dear friend, you know, and I know you know in a couple of weeks, but I, I, I'm i so grateful. I'm forever grateful for her for those, that, that 48 so, hours. <laughs> so, dear YouTube, um, this is not a commercial for Marks and Spencer, oh, no. <laughs> but Marks and Spencer is actually an, a veritable institution over there. And certainly, according to my wife and everyone I ever met, yeah, Marks and Spencer, chocolate, uh, yeah. Okay, I, I know where you're coming from. Yeah, Capri's are so good. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. But I mean, that's what you do. That is, but I, I don't expect anything else from you because here you are. You have been going for 20 years of trying to cope with anything that life throws you by either working too much or eating too much chocolate. Oh, well, guess what you're doing? <laughs> you oh, continue to work and eat chocolate. Surprise. Absolutely. Because <laughs> even in the depth of depression, I never took any time off. I kept going because taking time off and stopping was a failure. And in hindsight, that is what I should have done. And that's what I recommend yeah. anybody to do yeah. is take some time off and repair. Yeah. And I never did that. I never did that. So I, I, I do believe, you know, my breast cancer was there to teach me to say, you need to stop. Mm. And two, um, you need to look after yourself. And two, three, you need to live. Mm. You know, and we live. don't. And we don't know the contribution of the true contribution of stress and of a healthy, unhealthy lifestyle, shall I say, um, onto Absolutely. the disease creation and progression. So why is there an increase in certain cancers? And we certainly know that, for example, breast cancer um, and seven other cancers are linked to alcohol consumption. It is certainly also an issue of, of bad diet. Um, mm -hmm. So there's so much that we don't know. 
Okay, it's too too simple to say, oh, yeah, okay, you add the chocolate, therefore you have cancer. Bullshit, bullshit. Uh, we are talking very multifactorial things, and therefore it's so difficult to pinpoint any link between whatever we do um, and and the diseases that are creeping up on us. But I think in general terms, it's fair to say that both your lifestyle and my lifestyle were certainly not very conducive to a good functioning body that can defend itself against intrinsic yeah. threats such as cancer or extrinsic threats such as viruses, etc. Mm -hmm. So I I ran my body into the ground repeatedly. So I, I'm, I'm as guilty as charged here. So, but I think then you you were still in this working workaholic and chocolateaholic mode. Um, so how long did that continue? And which kind of more importantly, which kind of treatments came along? Because they would have altered very much what yes. your life was all about. Absolutely. So when I was diagnosed, they would tell me um, certain things they would do depending on what cancer it was. I mean, it was hormonal estrogen uh, was the cancer, but obviously they did a lumpectomy. Uh, literally a week after I was told and they mm. they thought that the cancer was 25 millimeters um actually when they opened me up they realized it was bigger it's 45 millimeters mm. they removed uh two lymph nodes um and then removed three lymph nodes and two lymph nodes um tested positive for cancer um oh. who I affectionately called Cyril and Sydney um because <laughs> I had to name everything then <laughs> Um, so you rather like the then, older names? I mean, there's Cyril, well, Sydney. I was trying to, I, I was trying to go for names that no one had in the family uh, and nobody were related to. Because uh, the first name I did come up with was Bert, but my nephew, my great nephew, was called Robert, and that was too close to home. So I oh, had to go I with see. names that I could have thought that they never okay. was nobody around. Uh, I like that. That's what I was I like going that. from. <laughs> um, and then, um, so yes, so I, yeah. I yeah, named it, we had lumpectomy, which also meant then I had to go down the chemo route. Mm. Um, now I'm going to sh share something about this um, because I always think about even tuition. And this is something that on this particular occasion, I now really believe in my gut feeling and that whole intuition we had. So the day before I got my results, um, ironically, I was at the hairdressers um, and I was talking to my hairdresser and then all of a sudden I just went, I'm going to have chemo. And she goes, oh, you don't know this. You don't know it's going to be fine. You know, kind of, you know, being a positive lover. And then the second day we went to the hospital and we're in the waiting room. And I said to my mum, right, we're going to get through the next step. It's going to be fine. It's going to be hard work, but we're going to get through it. And my mum's like, where's this coming from? You've been really positive. I said, mum, I just know I'm going to have chemo. No, you don't. Don't, you know, don't worry. It's going to be fine. Yeah. And of course we went in um, and saw the consultant and she told us obviously that the tumour was bigger. And the fact that they found, well, well she didn't say the fact that they said, but obviously she said they found the cancer on lymph nodes, which meant I was going to have to go through chemo. So, of course, I'm there going, yeah, okay. And, of course, my mum's absolutely devastated. And mm. the Macmillan nurse, because we have a, a charity over here called Macmillan Spookly, um, not spelt the same way as my surname. Um, but, um, and those nurses, they're always in in those appointments for you. And she said, yeah. Louise, are you okay? Do you understand? I said, yeah, I knew. I just absolutely knew. So, so now I always really, really believe in that, that, that gut feeling, that intuition, because I'm like, yeah, that mm. told me. And so I was prepared to be told that I was having chemo. Um, and I started chemo probably about a few weeks later. So literally, it was sort of a month after my lumpectomy, literally a mm. month after my lumpectomy, mm. um, I had um, my chemo. I had to have a pick line 
in my arm, put in for vein, which I affectionately called uh, Penny. Um, we do know some pennies, but it's the only thing I could think of with Penny the Pick line. <laughs> and um, so, yes, and, and I was still working. So um, we planned what was going to be happening. Um, you know, I, I did have uh, about an hour and a quarter commute uh, to work. So, um, and lucky enough, we finished early on a Friday. So Fridays was going to be the day that I was going to be having my chemo. So I had the weekend to recover. It was only half a day that I had to, didn't have to worry about. Um, I was going to have a laptop that I was going to take home. So on the days that I didn't feel good, I was going to be working from home. Um, but bless them, um, they paid me full pay um, throughout the whole thing. Didn't have to worry about sick pay. It was That wasn't going to be happening. It was going to be um, full pay. And we had a plan. And um, so, yeah, that was, you know, my mindset. That's how it's going to be. But well, first of all, another. first of all, I'm so pleased for you because not every employer is like that. Um, so to hear that support coming through, I mean, uh, who were these guys? We come on, let's spill the names. So who was that? Um, it was a, a group called Red Hall Group. Unfortunately, they are no longer um, around. But um, still, still, uh, which is a shame. But guys, I'm brilliant. proud it's, of you guys. It's Barbara, it's Sophie, it's yeah. Rachel, it's Ellen, and it's Jason. It was the team. It was they that were really supporting. Brilliant. I'm so pleased for you. Because that's the, the the hard thing for so many other people where who suddenly have not just the fear of the cancer, but the fear of existence. Because suddenly yeah. their 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 pay gets slashed or Absolutely. they lose their job. And with Absolutely. you just having started three weeks into a new job, I mean, uh, wow, how beautiful is that? Absolutely, because, you know, you, you so many weeks into a job, you wouldn't be entitled to the sick pay. Normally, you've got to pass your six-month probation mm, exactly. um, before you get any any pay at all. And that's where my mum and dad were coming from in that sort of, mm. you know, being practical. Don't worry about it. We'll get it we'll get it all sorted. Um, exactly. But Which we had to look at in the end um, because um, I did have another curveball <laughs> happen um which happens after my chemo and um we all thought I, I started getting stomach aches um it was the week after my, my first chemo so we just thought it was a side effects um nobody um around us had had chemo before obviously we'd, we'd kind of known distant people you know friends of friends but nobody in my immediate friendship group had anybody in their family or in our family had chemo even though we'd had cancer diagnosis mm. um so when i was having these stomach aches you know everyone was saying well, yeah, but you don't know and you don't know your pain threshold so, so of course my pain was dismissed because obviously i've not had children so what would i know about pain um literally that was what i was hey, told i haven't had children <laughs> <laughs> come on <laughs> what about but i was in absolute i was in absolute agony um mm. and on the monday which we now we are totally talking about the 7th of august um so we are not talking that long ago but obviously five years ago um I was driving to work and I had my this gut feeling that I ought to turn around and I thought I'm going to listen to my gut um, and so I did but I phoned I went to the service station and I phoned my parents to say I'm not feeling right I'm on my way home because I just felt this need to tell them that I was that's where I was and this is how far I was away from home and I was heading home just in case there was a problem because in my head I was also going I don't think I'm safe to drive um, but I did it was you know um, it was really early in the morning, so it wasn't too busy. I made it home. Um, I called um, my GP as soon as they were open to get an appointment. Mm. Um, I had to wait about an hour or so before I went down. Um, and then we went down and we chatted to the um, 
the GP. And in between this time, I'd had a CT scan to see if the cancer was anywhere else. Mm. And so she gave me the good news that the cancer wasn't anywhere else, which was mm. which was great. Um, but of course, it was overshadowed by the pain that I was in. And she examined me and she said, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on, on chemo or cancer. She said, if you come to me with just this, I would have said it was appendicitis. Um, and what I want you to do is I'm going to admit you straight away to hospital. Um, so she did all the calls. We were there. Mm. I went back home. Uh, well, I went back to my parents. I dropped my car off. My dad took us in because we didn't know how long we were going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so we arrived. Um, my sister, my little sister actually works um, at, at the hospital. Um, so we kind of messaged her to say we were there. Um, so her manager kind of said, well, just go and find out what's going on. And that was good because we were put into, I went into A&E initially and um, obviously saw someone, they sort of went through everything. And then they told me to go to like, an out, not outpatients, but another ward, um, which mm. was done. Of course, my sister was there and she spoke to the nurse, uh, the, 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 the medical staff in, in that particular ward, the nurse, and I think the receptionist and said, because of course she knows them said what had happened and of course because I'd had my chemo um your immune system is is, mm. is quite low and at this point my hair is falling out um and I've had it all quite, quite short cropped because we didn't know how the extent it was falling out um and um so they put me into a side a side room so that um with other people there that they my you know, just in case there's any other infections that people have there so mm. you know quite grateful that my sister worked there and she was able to sort of sort that out um, I then saw the original consultant um, who examined me and he said, right, let's get another CT scan. And I'll never, ever forget his words when he came back with those results. He said, you are a very, very poorly young lady. You are not at all well. Um, you have appendicitis, but actually your appendix have burst. It's now in an abscess, <laughs> which is stuck to your bowel and your colon. Um, when, when we did the original um, CT scan you could see something there and he, he showed me on the thing he said but we weren't looking for that we were looking for cancer sure he said and that's what we were looking for he said um and so therefore he said when we see it now of course it's, it's even worse he said um I you've got to stop drinking water at this point I can't get enough water down me because obviously I'm dehydrating he says I really need you to stop on the water because I'm going to try and do keyhole if not, I'm going to have to do major emergency surgery and I'm going to get mm. you in as soon as I possibly can the next day because it is borderline peritonitis. Mm. Um, and we don't want that abscess first. Um, so I had a very, um, very painful night in hospital because I was in absolute agony by this point. Mm. Um, and the next day I was taken in um, to have an operation and um, bless them, they tried to do keyhole. So I kind of got my belly, belly, belly dump, dimples. I can't talk to someone in belly dimples, um, but they, they, they couldn't do it. It was so big. So they had to open me up. Um, and so I've got a six, seven inch scar from the top of my belly button to the top of my bikini line um, where they had to open me up. So I've got a lovely scar. No scars before, and I get two in, the, in two months. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, that is it is what it is. Uh, Don't... Yeah, so I'm now in, yeah, yeah. in intensive care for 48 hours. My hair is all falling out by this point. You know, I could just put exactly. my hair, hand through my hair, and it's just all falling out and it's all over the bed. And yeah, so I'm in, I'm in intensive care for 48 hours. Brutal times. Brutal mm. times. Did you 
Can you remember much of that? Or were you actually in a haze and your your brain protected you from what was going on really? No, I, I can remember quite I can remember quite a bit. You know, I remember mm. still being sort of dehydrated and wanting loads and loads of water. Um mm. I and the other thing I remember them saying was um, of course, because I've never had an operation before or anything, so I've not had um morphine. I always get them mixed up. I have to remember it's morphine, not methadone, morphine. <laughs> Um, I, I remember them saying, um, you know, when the light comes on, you can press it for more oh. morphine. And they kept saying to me, Louise, you, you seem to be in a lot of pain. And I'm like, no, well, you're using a lot of morphine. And I'm going, you said when the light comes on to press it. They said, oh, no, when the light is on, you can press it, but only when you're <laughs> so, in pain. <laughs> so for people who don't know what we're talking about, Louise uh, so was, was in, like, in a hospital and she had a push button machine that was connected with a syringe to her yeah, vein. Exactly. And every time she pressed the button, a little amount of morphine was given, a milligram typically. And so the patient has got the, the possibility or the, the opportunity to treat the pain uh, herself rather than having to call for a nurse who might be busy, who then has to you know, get the drug from the cupboard, draw it up, mm -hmm. check it with another nurse, come back. That can take sometimes in a busy world 20 minutes. That's a long mm -hmm. time to be in pain. So therefore, we've got these modern machines, which are perfect, patient-controlled analgesia. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it is a minimum lockout of five minutes. And when the light comes on, uh, it's green, <laughs> then you can press it again. That's right. And so she did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> More times I needed to. <laughs> Who needs chocolate when we get morphine? Hey, yeah, that's it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you felt good. Uh, no, and I shouldn't say it like that. Um, yeah. At least your pain was under control because remember, absolutely. prior to that, you were in agony. So yeah, it's very absolutely. understandable. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the worst you... bit that I remember is, of course, because it was August. I mean, it was warm. Uh -huh. And I was just itching because, of course, my hair's all fallen out. So it's all over the bed and everything. Oh. And I'm just, just itching. So that, that was the bit, the worst bit I remember oh, is the yeah, fact that, you know, you're trying to just, yeah, make it oh. life easy. <laughs> Oh, I didn't even think about that. That was the worst thing when I still had hair. Um, and I went to the hairdresser and it, you get a little bit of hair there. It was itchy as hell. Um, I didn't think even ever yeah. put two things together with with um, with chemo and and loss of hair. Yeah, um, so all I was grateful for the fact that I had had it cut really short by that point because it, right. it was still long. Were you, were you tempted to go the full Monty? I, I did. Um, I had a friend when I came out of intensive care and I was yeah. in the hospital um, yeah. and friends began to hear what was happening. A friend's sister um, came in and shaved my head for me. Um, nice. I was in the hospital, so it nice. was nice. Made it a lot easier. Well, isn't it? Exactly. So you might as well go the, the full nine yards because ultimately yes. it is um, no. Okay, so you got rid of that itch, so to speak. <laughs> yes. And it might, it might sound weird to people. Every year we're joking about it, but what else can you do? What else can yeah. you do? It, it is. Yeah, I, I was trying to say that breast cancer wasn't dramatic enough. Mm. Obviously, <laughs> probably because I was still working. You know, the universe I, was saying, she's not got the lesson yet. I love it. Love it. <laughs> okay. Oh, I like it a lot. Was there at any one time a moment when you actually feared for your life? Um, I did when I had the lumpectomy. Um, you know, you, you, I've never been under anaesthetic before. So just going into that that surgery into that surgery room, you know, you little the little prep room you're in, and they were talking about it, and I just said I'm really really nervous. And they asked you if you've got any questions, 
it doesn't matter how silly, um, you know, ask any questions. All I kept thinking of is what happens if I don't wake up? Um, and so I was really, really nervous about going in and, you know, the administrators mm. and their assistants were very helpful, but it was fine, it'll be fine. Um, but when I went in for the appendicitis, I was just like, just get me in. <laughs> just, I'm in so much pain, just, just get on and do exactly. it. I just want it over with. So, like, yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So, I mean, that is these are all normal feelings. If you have never been exposed to something like that, of course, there is a certain concern there. Uh, rational or irrational, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's logical that your your body thinks, oh, my God. The reality, I might just well tell all of you guys, the reality for modern-day anesthesia in 2022 is it's far more dangerous for you to drive your car. It's far more dangerous for you to go mountain biking, okay? So do those kind of hobbies that you normally enjoy. It's far more likely to either maim you seriously this, this year or kill you, okay, compared with actually having a routine anesthetic. Let's be quite clear about that. But yeah. your mind, of course, comes up with all the kind of horror show. The, no, so that's normal. What I was actually hunting for was was essentially the, the kind of deep-seated fear, the deep-seated terror, of losing your life, which is often one of those things that then uh, morphs into an ongoing trauma and the post-traumatic stress disorder. That yeah. for some people, um, such a such a curveball as you described it uh, can very much have as a flow-on effect. We know with with motor vehicle accident, if there's a big MVA motor vehicle accident RTA. Uh, road trauma accident um mm -hmm. you it's about a one in three chance that you have got ptsd afterwards and it's often yeah. some something that is not well recognized uh in in the medical world um the same can happen after such a diagnosis was there something like that building was there the hypervigilance was there the, the kind of terror of sorts ever ever there it's not not initially I mean I didn't think for most of my treatment it didn't the the time that the, it was all overwhelming and consuming was when I was then having to look to go back to work um wow. you know and this was probably the April May of the following year wow. um and I was trying to have to sort of find a new job and that that then um I think it all came out um, and my my GP and my parents were going you are not ready to go back to work yet you're not ready you've you've come you've come through everything and and it's you're in this little bubble in this little cycle whereby you've got weekly oh. appointments because i have oh. to have my pit line cleaned out even if i'm not having um chemo and then after that it was a couple of weeks and then i was in four weeks of radiotherapy oh. um and that was every weekday going up to bristol because oh. there wasn't one local to me so that's a you know a 40 minute car journey but then you're, you're up there waiting to have your, your radiotherapy for four weeks mm. and then there was that healing time after that mm. and then it was something of right now you can start looking to go back to work mm. um and that's that it was um that that then is when it all kind of hit me because I didn't know what to do with myself I really didn't know what to do with myself I've been in a cycle of appointments after appointments and Brilliant. I'm like what now and I think that's when it kind of really hit me excellent excellent <laughs> uh, I remember after after rehab walking around and I was an empty shell I was walking the dog through the forest and I thought who am I mm. I had no answer I could no longer identify myself with work because at the moment I was I was uh, I was off sick um, 
I had no hobbies. I had, well, I had friends. I mean, the friends with whom I had a very active social life. Well, guess what? When you're no longer drinking, that doesn't work. What about yeah. your friends? Were there friends there for you? How was your relationship uh, with your parents? Absolutely. Um, my friends were absolutely brilliant. Um, right. Friends I've known for a long time, friends I um, only knew for a couple of years from work. Um, I did have a hobby. So when I was had depression a few years beforehand, about five years beforehand, I took up a new hobby, think, hoping that would kind of help. Um, and the ladies in that, it was a, it's a knitting group, it's a lovely knitting group. Um, and the ladies in that knitting group were just absolutely fantastic. Um, actually, they all knitted me squares they made into a blanket. So I had this oh, excellent. blanket of love that they gave me. Um, oh, excellent. When I had, and literally, it was just the weekend before I went, went into hospital with my um, appendicitis. But but that was that was lovely. And I didn't know. And it was a surprise. And oh. um, yeah, so that was that was beautiful. So and, there, and everybody was helpful. And it's it's because when I was in hospital, I was in for two weeks because um, I had an infection in my wound, um, which was um, quite a nightmare because I had to reopen me up and put a vacuum pack mm. on me so I had to walk around with this bag um which I called Stella because it's the only British designer I could think of with Stella McCartney um <laughs> and um, I went around with this bag on me and that was for a couple of weeks and then I still had it on me for about four weeks in total but when I was in hospital there was um my mum made sure mum and dad made sure they, they were in for I had a visitor every visiting time so if I had friends in then they came in if I didn't then mum and dad would come in so and I had friends that were in, I had messages from people I hadn't worked with for probably about 10 years from like the HR community, um, which was just lovely. And I remember sitting there one day in the hospital with my mum, and I was kind of just a little bit emotional, I think, just, you know, everything coming out of me. And I said, I'm actually liked. People do like me. Because I'd never really thought about it before, because I had so many cards, so many well wishes, so many text messages and whatsapp messages coming through it was just unbelievable and my mum said oh, of course you liked and it never really hit me beforehand that I was actually liked for being me it was a real eye-opener beautiful how did your transformation continue because you don't go through um, something like that for a whole year and then just go back into the old cycle of chocolate and work. That, yeah. No, that is, I'm sorry. That I, I want to see that person who still doesn't get the message by then. <laughs> right, I see, yeah. So what happened with work, um, it's obviously because I was in hospital. I was in hospital for two weeks. I had this vacuum pack on, which meant I wasn't going to be driving for a while. And whilst I was in the hospital, um, obviously I was liaising with work and they said, um, we need to have a conversation and I just said look if your conversation is you know we're going to end the contract I said that's fine because um, I don't know when I'm going to be back and mm. you you need someone to do this work so that's fine so blessing the contract um, ended at the end of August with pay for full pay um, they even then paid me a month's lieu of notice at the end of Beautiful. August I, I could not be absolutely more grateful to that company um it was just so kind of them um and so then I was off my doctor then signed me off he said you're not going back to work you've got to mm. you've been through so much mm. um you've got to you you know um mm. you, you just I just need to concentrate on this I actually think because my doctor knows me very well and he knows my history with depression and anxiety I think he realized that it wasn't 
it wasn't registering um, at that point. Um, because when I phoned him in the April to say, um, could you sign me off? I wasn't ready and I was in tears. And he did say, I'm glad I've seen you like this because I would have been worried that it hadn't hit you as hard, if that makes sense. Um, so eventually I was here, he said, I could go back to work, but I had to go back to work part-time because he said, I know you, you'll go from zero to a thousand miles an hour. He said, so um, I want you to go part, part, back part-time. If you can do three days, great. But if you're going to do four, four days, can you do Monday, Tuesday, have a Wednesday off, do Thursday, mm -hmm. Friday? Mm -hmm. So you're breaking it up. Mm -hmm. He said, because if you worked for anywhere else, he said, and you were in work employment, you would have gone back on a phase return. He mm -hmm. said, and you don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. So I went back to work and I decided not to do generalist HR. I was going to concentrate on recruitment because that was the side that I, I enjoyed. Um, I got a job in Bath. So um, we're talking about an hour and a quarter drive again um, for me to get there. So it wasn't anything local. So the Wednesday off helped um, and it was a fixed in contract. And that was good. Um, and I must have been about two, three months in and I was on the way home and I'm going, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this work. I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I could feel myself my whole shoulders tightening mm. um i could just feel the tension rising and then the next day i um came into actually what is this room but at the time was a bit of like a little bit of an office but i was, used to do my hair in this room so typically with what hair i had left or was growing back i should say um and on my wall which is just the side there it must be about this big and it says if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you've always got and on that particular morning, for whatever reason, this 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 phrase was like this big. It was like I came into the room and it was just so big. <laughs> and I said, yeah, if I always do what I've always done, I'm always going to get what I've always got. Mm. And I said, fine, that's it. I need to change things. I don't know what, but I'm going to definitely change things now. So obviously I continued um, and uh, my contract was renewed. Kept being renewed to the end of January. So we're now in 2019. And I thought... I've always wanted to be a life coach. I've always wanted to help other people. I've trained, I was qualified, but I'd done nothing with it because I didn't believe in myself and I didn't believe I'd get out to people <laughs> and I'm going to follow this. <laughs> um, so I had a plan and that's what I ended up moving into doing. Hmm. And after all, you've gone through the darkness. You've gone through a lot of hard times challenging times yet at the same token you were actually a woman of many abilities due to your training in hr which is yeah. not only the people skills but also the communication the the actually the troubleshooting the finding solutions for problems where other people only see insurmountable challenges you were taught to work around things so it's a logical kind of progression to actually say well okay if i can deal with kinds of sort of shit in a in a company well i also can deal with shit in people's lives and why don't i actually start with my own um, yes. so, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that's actually the interesting bit so I found the same in my life uh, when I actually finally then stopped and was in rehab I threw myself with the same the same I don't know in the same amount of energy at the recovery process 
uh, as I did in many other things in the past. But this time it was actually so different because I was working on myself. It was more painful. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but equally, it was it was so much more rewarding because I was actually building a foundation from which a new person could could grow. Could I was changing, and luckily I had the inkling that this was going to happen, and that gave me the power to to persevere. Um, what gave you the power to get through the kind of year between your original diagnosis and getting back to work? This must have been a roller coaster in its own right. I only hear you saying, I'm the fighter, I'm going out there, etc. Yeah. And very few little hints that there were some dark, dark nights of the soul there as well. Do you know, I, th I think... I don't think there was many. I think the, the challenge I ever had was people trying to tell me what I need to be doing and what I should be doing. Oh. Um, that was the challenge a bit because I didn't want to upset anybody. And and I had that realisation that, you know, nobody's done this before in my family, in my close friends. Oh. So when you've ever done things beforehand, there's always been somebody that's done it before, especially being the second oh. child. You know, I was never the first one to go through a change of school or go to college or go for exams yeah. because my older sister had done it. You know, she'd been married and she'd had children. So I was never going to be the first one to do anything. <laughs> so it was always sometimes that challenge of um, my mum said to me, um, you need to, I think you ought to wear your wig, which by the way, I called Winifred just to make you laugh. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, I don't want to. I've got used to seeing myself bold. So I went bold and, and of course I think, and also you have that kind of thing of people saying, oh my God, that's really brave and stuff and you kind of go I'm making a difference to people here I'm I'm showing people how you can do what's right for you yeah. and because I've got that next generation of nephews and nieces I just really wanted them to see cancer in a in a not scary way um because I remember when my nan had cancer she was like why me and she was very um not negative about it but she went in quite low and I think mm. that was a bit I didn't want to do I didn't want to have that in that impression I had for somebody to give to somebody else. Um, and I did have friends say that I made cancer less scary um, for them because I was going through. But I kind of just dealt with each day as it came, to be honest. I didn't have a day where I was thinking really bad until afterwards when it, all, when it all kind of stopped and I was out of the bubble and it was kind of, this is real life back again. I think it gave me that thing of, I want to live. Mm. And because I didn't have the stress of work, it was kind of quite, uh, even though it was quite hard going through the chemo and going for the radiotherapy and having the burns from radiotherapy, um, they were just like, well, this is just a bit, I'm going to, and it's going to repair itself. You know, mm. my hair's going to grow back. The, 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 the burns are going to die down. Mm. Um, the scars are going to, you know, um, they're going to always be there, but they're my war wounds. Mm. These are my constant reminders of what I've been through. Um, so it, it wasn't as, I didn't have a thing where about I'm not going to survive this. I just had the attitude that I'm going to get through this and it's going to be fine. And that was the thing. I got up every single morning. I got up every morning. I got washed and I got dressed. Um, even if I felt rough, I got up. I got washed. I got dressed because there was only me. When I had when I had chemo for the next sort of forty hours, I stayed with my parents in case there was a reaction to the chemo, so mm. I wasn't on my own. Mm. But then I came back to my house. So if I wanted a glass of water, I had to go and get it myself. Um, <laughs> 
you know, there was nobody else to go and do that. Yeah. So I think in that kind of thing, it gave me that thing of, I just have to do it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think if I say with my mum, yes, she would have gone and gotten a glass of water and anything I wanted, but I just needed that independence. And I didn't need the smothering. But the biggest thing my learning um, was that a lot of my anxiety and depression and the stress amounted by my perception of what people thought of me and the nitpicking and the things they've said. And, you know, that's that thing of people say often enough, you think it's real and you think it's true. But during my time I worked with cancer, the nitpicking, the snide comments, the little bitch remarks stopped. And I had this revelation of if you can't say it to me because I'm too poorly for cancer, you've got no right to tell me at any other time because obviously it's not right because you're just not saying it. And that was the biggest revelation for me to think about my mindset. Uh. And therefore, because I had that lesson, I suppose, in my head, in my mindset, that's how I change things in my head. That's probably one of the hardest things to do, keeping in mind that we have the tendency to be hypercritical to everything that we have done. We focus on the absolute everything that goes wrong. You know, four o'clock in the morning, you wake up and you've got the best of Stefan and the last 30 years of everything you have done wrong. And you think, and you you talk to yourself in ways that you wouldn't talk to your worst enemy. Yet we put ourselves down. So how the hell did you, did you jump from, did you get that realization that other people actually uh, stopped talking trash to you? And why the hell are you talking trash to yourself? Was that actually Absolutely. something that that naturally came to you, or was it was it actually something that maybe you you learned in therapy? Did you? What was your psychological support like? Um, it was it was psychological. Was was um, that women and nurses chatted to? Um, there's another um, charity that we have, which is quite local to where I am, called Penny Bourne, and they're about holistic therapy uh, mm. treatment. So I went. Um, uh, I think I went once during my chemo and then mm. about uh, a year later, yeah, it was about 2019 when I went on the second course mm. and it was a residential. Um, and they they kind of help you sort of think about, um, you know, your mindset and setting goals and mm. uh, living life uh, a little bit differently with um, living with cancer. And, you know, it's some of that those mindset kind of things. Mm. So it's such a therapeutic kind of area. And I think that kind of helped, helped mm. as well um, whilst mm. I was there. But it was noticing, I think, as well, some of the, the comments as well, sort of ceasing. And I suppose because I didn't have that stress of overthinking at the same time, mm. my mind was clear because, you know, I was nice. also some purposes. I was off work. I was yeah. like, you know, apart from having the treatment and going in, mm. you know, two weeks of, of apart from going in to have my pick line cleaned, mm. Mm. the rest of the days were, my set, were by myself. And I have a, had a friend who had her own business and, just readjusted some times that every Wednesday we went for a coffee um, and we chatted things through. Um, wow. And, you know, she was a friend that I could always chat through quite well. She was going through some things in her life. So we were a real good support network for, for that. And, and that kind of that kind of helped. Um, other things were on offer if I, if I wanted it. And I just at that time didn't feel I needed it. And I didn't want to go to uh, cancer groups because I was concerned and worried that there would be people there. And it's, it's it's not a problem if they think that way, you know, think of why me, oh, this is terrible. I'm, mm. you know, it's awful. Mm. If if that's what someone's going through, that's fine. But at the time, me going through cancer, I felt I didn't want to hear that. I just wanted to be 
was in my own little bubble. <laughs> and in some ways, I was in my yeah. own little bubble. Nice, nice. And that is, that is again, that's whenever you go into a mental health challenge, that is exactly something that you need to figure out for yourself. It's all quite nice to say in this, in the sense of, for example, a 12 AA or, or sorry, 12 step uh, program that when you go for an inpatient rehab, you then follow with 90 meetings in 90 days or something like that. Often enough, when I went into an AA meeting, um, I, the only thing I could think about was alcohol. Because the misery around me, and there was, there was, uh, I had the feeling that in the four weeks of rehab, I had gone light years ahead of many of those people who I met in the groups, um, who were who were still stuck in their in their um, first first steps. So it was a, a crazy time, I have to say, and so I understand very much that you chose to continue in your bubble, the way you called it. Um, yeah. It is just you found your way. And that is, I think that holds true for so many out there. There are myriads of ways there. Not everything will fit everyone. And your belief systems are are, are sometimes a hindrance that might need to be addressed. There's so much that's going on. Um, the only thing that, that I can ensure, assure you guys is that if you get thrown a curveball like that, everything changes. Um, the only thing that changes in recovery is everything. So, <laughs> my goodness. But you have moved on. So who is the new you? Who has emerged out of all that chaos? Um. Well, someone who um, believes in themselves a lot more than I than I used to. Um, it's not easy. Um, I did say when I was going for cancer, I'm never going to let my mental health affect me in that way. But it's not as easy as that. It's, it takes work. It, you know, I have to work on it all the time. And it's quite right what you said. Little things work for different people. So I have to find out what works for me. Um, but it's, it's about me just living life more fully, as I put it, but on my terms. Um, you know, I if I'm... You know, if I don't want to do something with friends and stuff because they're doing something, it's I'm going to go, do you know, have fun, that's fine. It's not for me. And I'm not going to worry and overthink that they're going to be horrible or anything because I'm not going to go and do that. But I am going to go and do other things that nourish me. And it's about what I call finding my tribe. Mm. Um, because, you know, there are people out there you meet and they come in for reason, season, as, as that saying goes, and then and they, and they depart again. But sometimes mm. you just meet people and you know from the outset that you, you're going to click. Mm. And, you know, sometimes they introduce you to things like more spirituality kind of mm. things, which I've done, um, which works for me. Now, I know from some of my oldest friends, they just think that's weird. But it's like, that's OK. That's, that's, that's right. That's fine. Whereas years ago, I would have think, oh, my God, I am weird. I am wired wrong. And I would have overthought it and I would have not done it. Whereas now I kind of go, do you know what? That's OK. Uh, because this is what nourishes me. Um, yeah. And I'm going to do more of it. Mm -hmm. And... That's that's fine. And it's finding those tribes that you can, do, you know, talk those things with mm. and you still have your friends that you join other doing other things with. And you want to grow. So in order to do so, you need to expose yourself to new influences and you need to be able to say, OK, well, yeah, that's a heap of bullshit or actually, wow, that worked. I have no clue why it worked. But it worked ever so well. And I, I had to experience it with a number of things in my life. Alternative uh, methods of healing, um, where I say, wow, I don't know what you just did, but 
I feel different. I'm floating out of here, not walking out of here. And that is, you know, if you can switch on, if there are different ways that can switch on your parasympathetic nervous system and in turn allow you to heal and allow your body to switch its own uh, guided missiles on to actually look around, okay, where do I actually need to, to uh, focus on healing? Your body will find it and your body will start to do so, but you need to give it permission. And whatever that takes, whatever whatever that means, that if that is if that is some sound balls bowls, shall I say, and and you you hear certain vibrations that really put you into a, a certain calm state, beautiful. Maybe some breathing exercises might be something. Mm. Maybe being indeed in in nature and meditating. That's it might be something like that. If you're religious, deep prayer. Um, if you are spiritually inclined and actually really want want quiet, then go onto a meditation retreat where literally you don't talk um, mm. for a whole week. <laughs> Shit, <laughs> that is something that would be scary for me. But I think one day I will do that challenge to just see what happens when you give your body the chance to look inwards and bring out whatever is waiting there to be brought out so it's beautiful there is so much out there that that will allow us to grow but until you get thrown a curveball like you had or two in your case actually uh, until you get two curveballs you don't stop you keep going with the chocolate and the workaholic the workaholic chocolate alcoholic uh sexaholic whatever your your holic is um we try to escape our reality we try to escape our pain we try not to deal with the negative emotions we want the instant gratification here and now give me that sugar give me that dopamine rush however i get that dopamine rush i just want the release and of course, there are so many things out there that can give you that instant release. And that's mm -hmm. the pitfall that so many of us have ended up in. But also the past does not equal the future. You mm -hmm. can choose at any one moment to say, actually, you know, enough is enough now. That lifestyle that I've lived, yeah, okay, that was me in the past, but now I want to explore something else. And that is where the magic starts. That is where you find your tribe, as you said, mm -hmm. where you connect with people. And, and I guess, uh, yes, you can try to reinvent the wheel. Okay, go for it and see if you can reinvent fire or something like that whilst you're there. Or you could choose, of course, someone who actually has gone through the shit before and has now is now a little bit further down the line. So that's where a life coach comes in or someone like you. So Louise, if, if, if people are out there who think, wow, I really want to know more about this woman um, and maybe even get in touch and maybe, maybe get some guidance and some ideas yeah. where to move forward to, how can they find you? Okay. So um, I have my own website, um, which is my name, www.louisemacmillan.co.uk. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, always, always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Um, and also on Instagram. Um, my game, my page is Louise Macmillan on, on Instagram. Cool. And if you want to read a little bit about her or from her, I know you've written a book chapter. Go on, show us your book. Yes. So um, I've been very lucky to be in a, a book called um, The Bounce Back of Women's Health, um, which you can get on Amazon. Um, and uh, yes, uh, there's a 
it's um, 36, I think, 36 plus women, um, even that many, 20 women, have all written a chapter. Um, yeah. I'm on page 73. <laughs> I know it off my heart. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and it's yes, beautiful. You can read, read my chapter. Yeah, beautiful, know. beautiful. And if that is not enough for you, you might as well go out there, get yourself my steps to sobriety, <laughs> um, where I share my story and the lessons I learned the hard way and demystify mental health and addiction and give you action plans where you guys can work with, uh, let that be um, toxic relationships or let that be any other challenges in your life. Uh, life is too short. Uh, don't reinvent the wheel. Find mm -hmm. a tribe that actually you gel with and then try to find those people who are further down the path than you are. You're just starting out. Or you might be in the middle of the path, but there are always people who are further down. See what they have done and learn from them and get infused by them because that's who maybe you want to become. That's certainly what I look for. I, I want to be the dumbest person in my team because then I can learn from all the people around me. Um, and it doesn't matter how much I'm a leader, how much I'm putting myself out there. Uh, it's still, I, every single time I, I speak to a beautiful guest like Louise, I learn and I reflect and I become a better human. And that's cool. So guys, find your tribe and check Louise out down there. If you look into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast, you find all her details in there. So don't be shy, um, say hello, and make the most out of your life. Whatever curveballs it is throwing your way. Um, that is just a reminder of the universe that you need to get your shit together and that you have got a legacy to uh, to leave, that you have got that you have got the privilege of choice. So go out there. Come on, I dare you. Go out there, look after yourself, look after number one and live with passion and maybe become the light in the darkness of others. Would that be cool? I believe so. Louise, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Bye. Dream on.